electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. While we're still asking, is this as good as it gets for stocks, the economy, and your money? We're debating what lies ahead. Risks to the record rally seem to be growing. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova, John Nigerian. He is the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. It's good to see everybody. Let's check the markets first and foremost. We've got a down day working here. The Dow's down 155. S&P's off by one half of 1%. NASDAQ, which has been trading at new record highs, has given back about 159, 160 points. And that's a loss of 1%. All right. Jim Labenthal. Seems like we're asking the very same questions we were asking before I actually left. And that is, is this as good as it gets? Is the economy peaking? Are stocks overvalued? What's going on with the taper? Here we find ourselves. I'm back and I'm thinking all those things. And remember, you were Mr. All In before I left. I at least thought about you maybe once while I was gone, wondering that very question. Are you still Mr. All In, Jim Labenthal, or are you wavering? I am still all in. I am not wavering. Had to get that out first. Welcome back, Scott. We missed you. Um, listen, it's interesting, though. It's like you never left, right? We're having the same discussion, as you pointed out, the same sort of risks that we're talking about. Uh, I guess we're going to have the discussion about whether a correction is due. You know I hate that, but I'm all in. And let me try to simplify this a little bit. You know, you brought up the taper. Let's say the Fed tapers in November. Let's say they go 10 months before they complete the taper. That means for the next year plus, Plus, you're still going to have the Fed putting liquidity into the system, albeit at lower amounts. But you're still going to have the Fed putting liquidity into the system. (laughs) That cash is going to have to find a home. You think it's going to go to T-bills? I don't. I think it's going to go into the stock market. And so, you know, we're 1% on the S&P 500 from the all-time high, which we just set last week. Uh, Maybe we go down 3, 4, 5%. But as has been the case the last year, I think that's going to be it before buy the dip comes in. And in the meantime, one other point I want to make. Excuse me. Fang has been crushing it the last few weeks. You know what hasn't been crushing it? Reopening slash cyclical slash value. That's where the opportunity lies. If you believe that with 75% of U.S. adults having gotten at least one shot, that we might be coming close to the peak of the Delta surge, as Dr. Gottlieb has said, this month will, will peak. That would tell us that the reopening slash cyclical trade is where you want to start pivoting now. Okay, so, Jenny, you you heard it there. There's a lot of uncertainty, it feels like. I mean, there was before. There appears to be now. Jim Labenthal basically says, don't worry about it. It's all good. Things are going to be good. Delta's peaking. We're going to get beyond Delta. We're going to get back feeling better about the economy, the recovery. We're going to spend our money. Stock market's going to go up because there's nowhere else to put your money. Rates are still low. Liquidity's still flowing. What's the big deal? You agree? 
I agree in the long term. And this is all about what I always come back to, which is what's your time period? So if you are a short-term trading-oriented person, you may, you may be pretty cautious right now. What I think is interesting is we have strategists coming out who are pretty bullish right now, strategists who are you know, a little cautious, and the bullish ones are only looking at one side and the bearish ones are only looking at one side. But you match them up, and I don't think it's a pretty picture. So I think on balance, I'm actually skewing towards a bit more caution and a bit more negativity. Wow. But because I'm a long-term investor like Wow. Right, but here's the thing. Wait a minute. Because I'm a long-term investor like Jim. Mm-hmm. I, I know, but before I left, you were like glass half full. You had the most Yeah. big picture, one of the more optimistic views about where we are. Now I I I feel like you're wavering a little bit on on where we might well, be in the no. market. No. Not not in the long term. In no, the short not in the term, long term. Okay, fair enough. In the short term, no. In the short term, you're right, though. I came back. I've been gone for the last two weeks, too, on vacation. It was really great. And I love those times. It gives you time to contemplate. But I came back, and I'm looking at the list of pros and cons. And the cons are seasonal headwinds. September's always weak. Massive stock issuance coming up. Central bank tapering. U.S. tax hikes, potentially. Maybe some fears over the debt ceiling. Earnings headwinds, potentially, because we're probably not going to match all that strength. Those are real negatives. The positives are, Jim's right, the Fed will continue to pump money in. We don't know at what pace. Earnings are resilient, but valuations are stretched. And I just see when I look at that balance, I think there's more strength in the, in the negatives than there is in the positives. I don't think we're up for a major correction, maybe a pullback. But then I say, I'm all in too. You know, I'm fully invested, just like Jim, because I'm long term. And I think that when you say is it as good as it gets, it may not. It may not be great in the short term, but is it as good as it gets? It's never as good as it gets in the long term. In the long term, the market always marches steadily onward and upward. So it's never as good as it gets. In the long term, it's always getting better from here. Okay. Just might be a bumpy ride. It's hard to argue with that, um, Joe. Right. I mean, I think most of our viewers are taking a longer term view. They think that their money's going to grow uh, fairly well over time. We, we certainly hope it does. In the near term, though, I don't know. It all depends on where you think we are and where we're going in the, in the more near term. Deutsche Bank today says they're expecting a significant pullback before equities rally once again. Quote, with signs that indicators of macro cyclical growth are peaking, we look for a significant consolidation slash pullback in equity markets, eh, S&P minus 6% to 10%. Bank of America's Savita Subramanian, she goes a step further. Mark to market, our S&P 500 2021 target is raised she says, to 4,250. Joe, do you know where we are in the S&P right now? We're at 4,500. Okay? I do. So she raises to 4,250. Oh, yeah. The problem is we're at 4,500, so that's not good. And she says, and I quote, this may <laughs> not end now, but when it ends, it could end badly. If taper means no upside to the S&P 500, tightening would be worse. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's got this right? All right. So let, let, let's break that down and welcome back, Scott. Good to see you um, in the near term. And Jenny's going to love this one. But understand there's competition for equities this week for the very first time. You have 38 deals in the investment grade and high yield market. In addition to that, you have 120 billion worth of government debt that's being offered. So there's competition here in the near term. Beyond that, I disagree with Jimmy. I think the roaring 20s narrative that cyclically oriented stocks, whether it's airlines, casinos or hotels, that's kind of been priced out of the market over the last couple of months. And I think it's going to be continued uh, to be priced out. I think where the money has gravitated towards is the fangs in a very defensive nature. 
And I think, Scott, yes, a 5% pullback, we all know that garden variety correction could come at any time. But if you want to give me a double uh, a double percentage decline in the market, you have to tell me that the fangs are going to break down just as they did in 2018. 2018, you lost Netflix in June. In July, you had Facebook go down 20%. Two days later in July, you lost Alphabet. By the time you got to September, all you had left was Amazon and Apple. This time around in 2021, you have strength in the fangs. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could make an argument with the 7% decline in Amazon in July. That's the beginning of something. But there's still enough of the fangs near their all-time highs that I think that buffers any potential double-digit decline. I can't argue with that. John Nigerian, can you? I mean, we've been making the case that the one thing holding the market from a sizable correction is the fact that when you had the rolling correction, which started way back last fall with the fangs and then worked its way through various parts of the market, it hasn't caught up to the fangs yet again, right? You can't have a big pullback in stocks if Apple is right around near highs. And oh, by the way, you have more bullish calls, including from Pete's favorite analyst, Katie Huberty, today. Uh, looking at an 8.7% upside from where the stock currently trades. Overweight, target 168. Baird reiterates they go target 170. Is, is that the right way to look at it, Doc, that you cannot have these pullback calls, whether it's Mike Wilson's or whoever, come true if the fangs continue to hold up like Joe says they are? Yeah, uh, that is true. And Joe's right. Uh, We will not see that significant pullback. It's now been 212 days today, Scott, since we've had a 5% pullback. Uh, In other words, way out in October of uh, last year. Uh, That's a long time, certainly. And why? What are the reasons? Well, we're throwing a ton of money at the markets. Um, It is doubtful we're going to get 3.5 trillion more I think we'll get something, Scott, but I don't know that it'll even be over $2 trillion, given that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema mm-hmm. um, are basically making noise about this being way too much money and maybe taking a go-slow approach, which is not what their colleagues want to hear. And then you've got the ECB, which meets tomorrow, and Germany basically sounding as if they are done with this free money uh, part of the economy over the European Central Bank will have to address that. So we've got a lot of things pushing right here, Scott, in the short term. I don't know that any of those are big enough to derail us, again, in the short term, but it's going to depend on this package that ultimately by perhaps the end of September, if we're believing Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, uh, there will be some sort of a package that could go to a vote. They, of course, won't bring it to a vote, Scott, if they don't have the votes. And so they got to herd those cats if they cannot. And I think that this will be substantially less than that uh, original number the president wanted. Um, Maybe even the moderates and uh, the progressives have a fight over which way we're going to go with this. So all of that is contributing to where we are right now. So to Jenny's point, this is why in the short term people are nervous Um, And I do think that that European Central Bank tomorrow is a big issue for the markets this week. Jim, Farmer Jim, your your strategy seems complicated to me. Like a lot has to go right for people to start putting money in cyclical stocks and expecting that trade to work. And I'm wondering why bother when you look at a Sherwin-Williams, for example, right? They cut their outlook. PPG was a similar issue. Aren't those issues to contend with when, as Joe said, why not just play the things that are working? 
growth is working, FANG is working amid questions about whether growth is peaked, like Goldman, I think it was yesterday, came out and cut their, cut their growth outlook. Why not just do that? Um, the sh- it's interesting to bring up Sherwin-Williams. You, you might look at that as a canary in a coal mine, but you've got to remember that stock has just been on fire for years. And so for it to be off, you know, 3-4% from its recent high is really not saying that there's something damaging being done in the sector. However, you say it's complicated. I'd say it's made easier by where prices are in most of the reopening trade. I mean, you look at you look at how badly the airlines have done, the cruise lines have done. Now, you know me, Scott. You know I'm somebody who says price matters. I know there are other people in the market and on our show, our friends, who say price doesn't matter. I beg to differ. I know Jenny's with me on this. What I will say is if I look at Apple, and let's talk about that as an alternative for a second. It was 120 back in February, March. That's what I Jenny called it, dead money, shares, I think. Right? That's what Jenny said, dead money. I hate to keep bringing it up, but well, you teed me up. by that. You teed me up. <laughs> you love bringing it up. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to set up Jenny. You did. What I'm trying to say is at 156, wherever it is today, up 30, up 30%, up 30% in seven months. Do I think it's going to go up 30% in the next seven months? I'm going to dare to say no. Maybe it goes up 10%, okay? I'm not selling those trading shares yet, but what I am saying is where I've added shares in the past few days, I know this is your first day back, but I've added shares to Wynn Resorts. That's a classic reopening play. I've added shares to Union Pacific, which is a heart of the industrial sector industrial. I am ready for the economy to keep growing and actually pick up speed into 2022 if, as I presume, Delta will peak later this month. If Delta doesn't peak later this month, I'm in trouble, okay? But I've made my bed. I'm going to lie in it. I think I'm being clear. And actually, not to quibble with you, I think it's actually a simple equation. Okay. I just have to be right about Delta. You can, well, I mean, okay. I mean, that's no small thing to be right about, right? I mean, I, yeah, but you know what? You got to take your stance. If you want to make money in investing, you better get on the balls of your feet and make an investment stance. I'm making it. I hope right. I'm right. I think I'm going to be right. I can't prove to you right now that I'm right. The issue, though, Jenny, is that the, the calls, the most notable calls in the market are, are all not all mostly related to the fangs. I, I mentioned the Apple ones. It's not the only one that's out there. Microsoft Target goes to 345 today at Jeffrey's. Alphabet Target goes to 3400 at Guggenheim. Joe's Netflix, which he just bought recently, the price target goes to 705 at J.P. Morgan. That's 17% from here. Joe, you bought it last week. It's been hitting new highs. It gets new calls every day. So, Jenny, what about the fact that that's where the action is, right? You play the game where the action is. Is, is Jim, making, I, it, I don't is think Jim making it a little too difficult with this cyclical play? Because you've got to be right on Delta, and you've got to be all. right about a lot of other stuff, too. You've got benefits coming off for unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. You've got the fight on Capitol Hill over spending and the budget, taxes. That complicates things, doesn't it? I, I mean, it, it's always complicated, right? There's always something messy out there. So I don't think Jim is making it too hard. And when I was on just before I left for vacation, one of the things I said was, I don't think if you want to outperform over the next year and change, I don't think you're going to outperform the same way you outperformed in the past. So the FANG stocks, like they're fun to talk about, right? We all know Netflix. We all use Amazon. We all use Facebook. But I have a portfolio of 33 companies that don't involve any of those. And it's done really well, too, really well. And you don't need to own those to be part of it. So while they do dominate our conversation here on CNBC, they do not necessarily dominate 
our conversations off camera as portfolio managers constructing portfolios, Jim brought up a really good point, which is that there's always you always look at the valuations. And that's something, too. You don't need to be bullish on the market to think that you can make money. So I'm, you know, pretty like, eh, for now. And I think I might be gritting my teeth and burying it for a while or bored or ho-humming as the market either trades down or is flat. Who knows? But that doesn't mean I don't think I can make a lot of money. There's 3,500 publicly traded companies. You can own 33 or 35 or 50 of them and outperform the rest if you do a really good job and a really careful job. So I think, you know, I think it's all about valuations. I think it's not about painting with the broad brush strokes like we were able to do in 2020. I think mm -hmm. this year continues to be a year of nuance. One of the companies that I added to last week, mm -hmm. for example, was AbbVie, right? That's not in the big conversation, but it's really interesting. It traded down 10% last week because they got, um, they needed a special language on one of their major drugs. That knocks less than a billion dollars off of sales, but it knocked $20 billion off of the market cap. Meanwhile, you've got something with 4.5% yield trading at nine times earnings. Like, that's compelling, but it's not the big flashy topic, and nobody wants to be on CNBC talking about, like, you know, arthritis no, and... and but um, but, but, you but know, you all can, of that, it's just not fun. You can also make the case, though, that that's, it's somewhat representative of the fact that healthcare stocks have done well and the FANGs have done well. And they both, if I think you can make the case, have a more defensive nature to them. I don't, I don't, see, I don't see everybody running out and doing the, the Jim Labenthal, let me, let me throw the darts at the cyclical stocks because I think that they're going to work. I think that the Delta variant is going to peak this this month there, there's been a bit of a defensive tone joe so let's let's think about corporate behavior for one moment is corporate spending going to continue as it relates to productivity we know the answer to that yes so therefore microsoft amazon alphabet apple that plays into continued spending on productivity are corporations going to be spending on travel right now with the lack of visibility surrounding where the variant's going to be going? The answer to that, I think, without question, is no. And I'm not going to allocate my dollars towards when that corporate travel is going to return once again based on what the variant might or might not do. Doc, I saw you wanted to say something, please. Yeah, uh, Scott, I'll just point out that uh, even though it sounds like, uh, you know, that we're collectively sort of cautious, uh, I'll put it that way, Scott, uh, long-term bullish we have a very bullish trade that went up just minutes ago oh, okay it was nearly twenty thousand s p calls hmm. uh these are calls that are at the end of september scott at the 457 strike for the spy so that's of course one tenth of where the uh, uh s p 500 that you're citing at 4500 is this would be 450. So in other words, they're buying those. Uh, it's only a one and a half percent move, but they bought two million share equivalent of that index, Scott. And we thought that was noteworthy. That went up on our board just minutes ago. So as much as uh, the buy the dip gets talked about, here's a very big buy the dip statement made by somebody buying 20,000 of these calls, even though it's not a huge jump for us just to get back to, um, you know, 457-ish uh, by the end of September. Uh, but that's a big call, and I thought I should note it for you. I'm glad you did. I mean, stocks have moved, um, you know, a little bit off the mat from the worst levels of, of where they were. Let's bring in our headline guest now, Adam Parker, to weigh in on the markets. He's the founder of Trivariate Research. AP, welcome back. Good to see you. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. You know, I looked at your note today. 
to our producer and you say, generally, I remain bullish for the reasons I have talked about for the last 18 months. And I thought to myself, why would he say generally I remain bullish? Because you've been unwaveringly bullish. And are you saying now I'm basically bullish? No, I'm, I'm mostly I'm, I'm, bullish? No, there's no nuance. I'm bullish. I think of the people I heard, I, I guess for me and my clients, it's not useful to try to make two or three week cautious calls or, or one month cautious calls. I try to sort of stick to the big picture. I always think of this analogy, Scott, you might like. Imagine you're walking your dog around Central Park, okay? Your dog's going to go sniff at stuff and climb at trees and chase butterflies. But when you ask me where the market's going, you know, I, I mean, I think about it. Am I on Central Park South? Am I on the east side? Am I on the north? Or am I on the west? Like, where am I holistically, not where am I running around? Where's my dog chasing? Holistically, I'm bullish. You know, earnings are going to be fine. I think the conversation should be about what impedes earning progress for next year. That's the key. And I think, think earnings are going to be fine. I think the Fed's going to remain accommodative. I do think there'll be a fiscal, whether it's a trillion or two trillion. I don't know, but it's all probably bullish. And, and so I don't really see why I should be super cautious. But as you know, and we've talked about many times, you always, always, always sound dumber um, when you're bullish. No, but I mean, the question is, is how bullish? And that goes right back to the is this as good as it gets environment when you have, you know, a disappointment. I think the market can go up, you know, high single digits, low double digits over the next 12 months. You know, I have a 1.7 percent dividend, a couple percent net buyback. I think earnings grow mid single digits to higher, probably trough in Q1, Q2 and then grow again. So, you know, that's a pretty good cocktail versus almost anything else out there I see investment wise. So I I don't see why um, I can't have high singles, low double digit returns over a 12 month view. It's pretty good. What do you think about growth, though? I mean, if if I say, okay. Growth is not going to be what we thought it was going to be. And the Fed is going to start taking a little bit of the punch out of the punch bowl. Doesn't that have an impact? Oh, oh, by the way, taxes may be going up and we're not going to get as much of a stimulus package as maybe we once thought we would. Doesn't that all like A plus B plus C plus D equals maybe E isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be? Yeah, the work, well, yeah, let's back up and say earnings are up 20 percent. Like, Analyst expectations are now 20% higher for earnings than they were on January 1st. And the market's up 20%. So maybe it all makes kind of makes sense. I mean, if you're saying that the, we're going to have bad growth and the Fed's going to get, you know, more hawkish, then, yeah, that's not a good cocktail. I wouldn't dispute that. But I, mean, I don't do- think they will. I, I think that they are the smart ones. I don't believe that. Uh, I, I, I kind of loathe it when people make fun of the Fed and they say the Fed are dumb and they're late and all that stuff. I think the Fed wants to create inflation. They know, how to, they know how to control that through conventional activity, right? And, and so they want to run, run hot. They're going to wait and see how transitory it is. And I don't think they're going to remove the accommodation anytime soon. I, listen, I worked at a big firm for a long time, and they were calling for back the rates every single quarter for, I don't know, several years. And the Fed acted years and years after they thought. Man, don't throw your that former is, peeps under the bus, all right? Don't do that. I, I've always been an equity guy. I'm just saying lots of smart people try to make the backman rates call and aren't right. So we'll see what happens there. But I don't think the Fed's going to remove the accommodation anytime soon. So but I hear you like if you're painting the picture of that growth is going to disappoint at the exact moment the Fed removes the accommodation. Yeah, that's not going to be great. But I, but, I mean, do you I think, just don't think that's going to happen? Do you think, do you think that the recent events related to the economy, whether it's consumer spending or sentiment or the weaker than expected, much weaker jobs report, you think that has now changed the timeline for the taper? You know, it's tough to know on the taper. Like, I do think, and you probably remember years ago uh, when, when I wrote this first, you know, we wrote that whole notion of bad is good and good is good. And I kind of feel like that's 
the regime again here, right? Bad news economically, a little bit of light retail sales, a little bit light jobs, right? Maybe that's good because then the Fed remains accommodative longer. And if we end up getting good economic news in a couple of months, that'll be good because people say, well, things are good. So I think we're in that Goldilocks a little bit, Scott, where I think the Fed remains generally accommodative. I think earnings are going to be fine. I don't see those corporate impediments, tons of inventory, tons of capex, lots of dumb hiring, big fancy new corporate headquarters. I don't see any of those signs of management hubris. I don't have any debt due at the company. So I think earnings can grow pretty well. And so, sure, I'm going to peak mathematically. I peaked in Q2. It's going to trough sometime Q1, and that's going to accelerate again. So if people want to pay a three-month wiggle on a down five, I don't know. Of course the market can go down 5%. Of course it can. But I think in the holistic, longer picture, our equity is the place you want to be. Of course they are. Okay. And when I see lots of bulge bracket firms get more negative, does that make me more positive sentiment-wise? Of course it does. Jim Labenthal, you have a question for AP? Hey, Jim. Always good to see you, Adam. Welcome. We got to get together. I'll work on that after the show. Hey, you mentioned sure. one word I don't think is getting uh, is getting enough press, which is inventories. When we get through these supply chain shortages, which are not going to be done all at once, but they're going to gradually come through. Don't we have a massive inventory restocking? I mean, imagine what happens when GM and Ford actually get chips. Those plants are going to be cranking out trucks and SUV like crazy. Am I too bullish? Scott thinks I'm throwing darts at that, you know, happy days here. Am I, am I being too, uh, too bullish, too pie in the sky? I actually agree with you the most of anyone on, on the panel today. I actually think it does make sense to buy some cyclicals. I think you might get bailed out not just on your Delta call, but even on a kind of bit of a less onerous uh, China policy where you could get a bit of a reflation bid. And when I look at some of the sticker goals, like one I pushed last time on the show was Steel Dynamics. Analysts thought they're going to earn $3 on January 1st of this year. They now think they're going to earn $13.40. The magnitude of the upper revisions are so strong that these companies can improve their balance sheets, completely delever. And if you want to dream and you say, okay, well, buying equities is I buy my little dream today and I sell it to a sucker with a bigger dream later, they're one of three companies that actually make rail tracks. So if you get some rebuild America infrastructure, plan that, that that's got that dream too so i think there are cyclicals you can buy scott i kind of you know agree with it i don't think it's only the delta variant that you're playing there and another observation i'd have on on jim's point is we have this kind of risk management system when we look at our stocks work from home stocks are they reopening are they quality are they junk the quality reopening plays have still massively lagged work from home junk since the beginning of covid there's no way that's going to be the case on a two-year view so i'm pretty constructive on and there's a number of things underneath i can buy I mean, you're talking about those stay-at-home things like the, the Zooms and the Pelotons. Is that what you're calling stay-at-home junk? Yeah, I don't think those are very good securities. I agree. Those are good examples. I mean, I'm not saying it. I, I'm just guessing that those are the ones you're talking about. Yeah, I agree. I, I think they'll lag. I think there's others. Helen of Troy. There, you know, Helen of Troy was, was one where I thought it was a poster child last year where, you know, they have like a women's hair care business and they've got, um, you know, respirators and thermometers and they've got the OXO brand you know, kitchen appliances and like all those went bonanza during yeah. COVID, but ultimately you're going to be over earning at some level. So I want to buy things where, you know, basic consumer services that are suppressed or, you know, I want to buy, um, you know, things that, you know, like steel dynamics. Some of these materials companies are going to have so much profit. They can totally delever their balance sheet. So, yeah, I should pay a higher multiple this cycle than it did at the same point last cycle, given how much they've improved. I think when you look at cyclical, Scott, yeah. you have to you can't put them all in one category. Right. You picture Owen Williams. I think it's an interesting example. But I think you have to look at how much did the stocks go up? How much did they improve their balance sheet? How much is their profitability improved? You know, how much did the multiple change? There's a lot of combinations. A company that was going to earn three dollars in January 
1340 now all right. certainly is better than people thought. I got to run. We'll talk to you soon. Always enjoy right, to see to you see again. You. All right, you be well. Okay. That's Adam be Parker well. joining us. I got Trader Moves coming up after the break, plus this mystery chart. It's up more than 40% in the past three months. A new street high price target today on the stock. We'll debate if there's still time to get in. We'll do it next in our call today. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. For the first time in a year and a half, the Supreme Court will hold in-person sessions when it starts hearing arguments next month. However, the court will not be open to the public due to COVID health concerns. North of Atlanta, some residents woke up to homes and roads flooded by heavy rain overnight. Abandoned cars were scattered as drivers found streets impassable. The good news is that most of the water receded within a few hours. And on the news, the Northeast preparing for more damaging rains. Flash flood warnings have been issued for some areas still recovering from last week's deadly floods. Get the latest tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. In Indonesia, a huge fire tearing through an overcrowded prison near the country's capital. At least 41 inmates have died. Another 80 are injured, many with severe burns. And the head of the World Health Organization is calling for a moratorium on COVID booster shots for the rest of the year. He says that vaccine donations from richer nations have been slow and that the world's poor should not be satisfied with leftover supplies of vaccine. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Right, and welcome back, Scott. Thanks so much. Appreciate it very much. All right. The Investment Committee is making moves. As I said, Joe Terranova, I begin with you. I see you sold the KRE, the regional bank ETF. Why'd you do that? Scott, I had purchased it on July 23rd at 6290-ish. Uh, I have heavy exposure in financials. I've been building that exposure over the last six weeks, initiating positions in BAC and in the XLF. KRE, on a relative performance basis, is underperforming the rest of the majority of my financials, which include Blackstone, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. So what I did was I reduced my holding, got out of uh, KRE, redistributed the capital equally amongst the other financial names that I mentioned. Okay, you also sold Bungie and you bought EQT Corp again. Take me through that. Yes. 
Well, that's a natural gas trade. It's interesting because Adam uh, Parker was just talking about steel dynamics, and he actually mentions the one steel name that I would buy. But right now, if you're a producer of fertilizer, if you're a producer of steel, and you see natural gas prices at a seven-year high towards $5, it's going to be very challenged and variant for you with that power generation cost. So Bungie has really moved in a sideways pattern since I bought it in the middle of July. That's one of the reasons why I kind of timed myself out of that trade. But I also know you've got that added cost in natural gas. Now, I wanted exposure to natural gas. I went back to where I believe the company that has the best balance sheet, free cash flow generation, that's EQT. Understand, EQT is kind of hedged with natural gas prices through the middle of 2022. I believe natural gas prices move longer term throughout 2022, so I'm okay being there. But if you think you want more of a near-term price sensitivity to rise in natural gas prices, then you look at cabin oil and gas, COG instead. All right, you got my first call of the day uh, today, Joe, because it's Chipotle. I do. New okay. street high price target, <laughs> ready to guac and roll, says Cowan. They go to twenty two fifty from $2,080. Oof. That's 17% from here. Is that a little too oh optimistic on the guac? I can't see the TV, but did Jimmy just fall out of his chair on that one? Because I know last <laughs> time with 2,000 he did. Uh, that, that, Scott, that's a little optimistic. That is. I'm very happy to hold the position. Uh, I, I believe in the transformation of what they are doing there with mobile ordering, which digital ordering, which really recognizing this is uh, – a quick serve restaurant, not just focused on lunch, but also focused on dinner. But there are challenges ahead. We have to understand what food inflation is going to look like. We have to understand what wage inflation is going to look like. I think that price target is a little rich. Let's get above 1940, which was the all-time high established back uh, just a few weeks ago. And then we could talk about 2000. And then down the road, we'll think about 2240. Jimmy, That's a long way off. Jimmy might have fallen out of his chair, but he was probably still riding that <laughs> high from Adam Parker saying, I, I wrote it down because, I mean, I knew Jimmy was going to, like, frame it and put it on the wall behind so we see it every day. <laughs> I actually agree with Jim more than anyone else on the panel, said Adam Parker. You heard that, Jim, right? <laughs> Scott, I think you're the only one who was surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, AP threw it out there. I figured we might as well note, note it, frame it, and put it up on the bookshelf behind you. Now, you, you do Scott, get, I, Scott, I missed you. I'm glad you're back. Yeah, I missed you too, Jim. Uh, you do get my next yeah, call of the that, day. That, it, uh, that I felt that, believe me. It was sincere. It was completely sincere. <laughs> Qualcomm. Qualcomm, Jim. Reiterated, oh, reiterated strong buy. No, it was reiterated a strong buy at Ray J. Quote, we don't believe Qualcomm's yeah, no, licensing listen, revenue uh, from no. Apple is at risk. What's up with that? Why you sound like exasperated about this one? Because, because the stock's been driving me nuts. It's not you. It's just the stock's been driving me nuts. I actually think of your funny line a few months ago that maybe they should split their shares like NVIDIA did. That was pretty darn funny. Look, the stock is well, having trouble up, getting out of its own like way. That. 
<laughs> All right. Well, pace yourself. First day back, just pace yourself. Now, um, look, I, I still believe in Qualcomm. To the extent that it has labored because people are worried about Apple, I think is missing the point on many levels. First off, they're not even two years into a six-year deal with Apple. That's number one. Uh, number two, it's the patent library that matters for Qualcomm. Apple can go through all the trouble of designing its own chips and trying to work its way out of Qualcomm, but you still have the intellectual property that you got to pay Qualcomm for. That's the thesis here. It's taking two long to develop, but I'm not giving up on Qualcomm, not for a second. Okay, you did give up on uh, Intel, I guess, a while back. Jenny, though, did not. And Intel gets resumed today at Deutsche Bank. Hold. Wow. Quote, we're meaningfully dubious. That says it all. I think in that note, what says it all is that he says it's a very much wait and see. Now, in this, in this, um, <laughs> well, isn't he right? Their earnings estimates. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it's important to understand what wait and see actually means. But in this in this reinstatement of um, coverage, right, uh, he said his his estimates are 10 percent below consensus. That's pretty uh, aggressive to be 10 percent below consensus when for the last three quarters, Intel's actually meaningfully beaten consensus by like 20 percent plus. And I think wait and see is also exactly where I am. In my case, I think wait and see means that there's a lot of potential, like a lot of potential upside. And I think it's hard to put a price target on when you're saying wait and see. I think it's easier to put a price target on when you're saying, hey, we expect exactly this much from you know this product line and that much from that product line. But when you're in wait and see, $58 as a price target seems pretty arbitrary. I suspect there's a lot more, and I don't think that we should sell Pat Gelsinger short. I think there's a lot of upside potential here. All right. But I might be sideways on it, and I might be needing to be patient for a long time, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> which that... is so far what it's been. All right, all right. <laughs> all right, still ahead on the half. We have John's unusual activity. We have a, the trade as well ahead of GameStop's earnings after the bell tonight. We're looking forward to that. But first, to check on the S&P sectors today. There you go. I said it was kind of a defensive tone. Well, utilities are leading the way today. Materials picking up the rear. Dow's down 74 and changed. S&P is off a fifth of a percent. There's the Nasdaq, which just set a new record high a day ago, giving back 100 today, two-thirds of a percent. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. This will likely be a record year for the IPO market, and the fall season will be chock full of big consumer names going public, including Warby Parker and a direct listing, Fresh Market, Allbirds, Instacart, Chobani, Sweetgreen, Impossible Foods. Here to talk about it, Kathleen Smith from Renaissance Capital, an advisory firm to IPO investors who also runs the Renaissance Capital IPO ETF. That's a basket of the most recent 60 or so IPOs. And Brian Schaefer. Managing Director at Investex Capital, which is enabling the marketplace for private securities transactions, allowing employees and shareholders to get liquidity while the company is still private. Kathleen, the first eight months, 279 IPOs raised $96 billion. What's the outlook for the final four months? And could we make this a record year? 
Well, the numbers are already astonishing. And the reason the issuance has been so good is back in 2020, the Renaissance IPO index that the CTF tracks, which is a basket of already traded companies, was up over 100% compared to the S&P 500. But much better. And that sort of opened the floodgates for the second half of 20 and into the first half of 21. So we've seen strong uh, issuance. We had a little pullback in the summertime. And now the index is outperforming the S&P over the last three months. That triggers an opening of the IPO market. And we are seeing that coming up. We expect to end the year with another 100 IPOs. That'll get us to a number of 375, which will be a record compared to anything we've seen since the internet bubble of 2000. And we're thinking there'll be about another 30 billion raised. And if you add that to what's been done so far, it will be about 125 billion, the most raised ever in the IPO market. Big time. Well, let's hope. Kathleen, let's hope the market holds up. Brian, it used to be companies would be private for five years, and, and then they go public. Now I see companies sitting around, some of these already, 10 years they've been private, and they're still not going public. Tell me something about what kind of opportunities are available for people who want to buy or sell shares of private companies. What are you doing to help them out? Yeah, and thanks, Bob. It's great to be back in my old stomping grounds yeah. here at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and some of the things that we're doing a little bit differently at, at Investex is, um, and, and on the platform that we've just recently launched is thinking about how to democratize investing in private companies. And so we have very, two very distinct offerings. Number one is we go out and we seek and secure investments in private companies, then put that on our platform and allow our broker-dealer partners to distribute that to their clients, giving access to private companies for the first time ever um, for accredited investors. And as we see, the opportunity there has just been massive as uh, the asset class in general is just pistol hot right yeah. now. That's going to be very important. And, and, and quickly, how are you actually enabling people to do that? You have to get a broker, though. You can't do a, be a private person. So we only allow reputable and regional tier two broker dealers onto the platform. But the second piece of the platform and what it enables is transacting in private companies that early investors, founders, employees, or officers have shares of. And if you think about engineering a win-win for early investors and in startup companies who can now sell those shares for their liquidity needs to institutional clients who would love to have access to this super exciting asset class, um, as to your point, client customers are still, um, excuse me, companies are now staying private for 10 to 15 years. Okay. Thanks very much. Kathleen and Brian will offer a deeper dive into the upcoming IPO season and how you might be able to buy into private companies in the future. ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. That's ETFEdge.CNBC.com. Halftime. Back right after this. All right, Dr. J, unusual activity. What do you have for us? All right, Scott, a uranium play to kick it off. CCJ in here with the stock trading at about $22. They came in and bought 12,000, which is 1.2 million share equivalent of the December 25 calls. So they're betting on more appreciation between now and December, Scott, probably be in those calls most of the next three months. This has been a hot sector. Second one quickly, Disney. With the stock at 187, they were buying a ton of the 187.50 calls. But here's the caveat, Scott, deep end of the pool. These calls expire this week. Mm. So only two more trading days, and then these calls are gone, but they're literally right at the money. And lastly, uh, Joe got rid of his KRE. I think he's smart to have done that. 
we see a lot of buying of KRE puts. That's that regional banking index Mm. that Joe talked about getting out of. They're buying those puts today in big numbers out in October, Scott. I put on a trade. I already had some of these puts. I put on more because of this uh, put activity. Oh, interesting to know. All right, you keep us up to date on all that. Doc, thank you very much. As you know, it's been a volatile year for GameStop. Meme stock popping 30% in the last month alone. What do you do now? Should you add it ahead of earnings? Dr. J will tell us, along with the gang. We'll do it next. All right, let's get ahead of some of the earnings after the bell tonight. GameStop and Lululemon. All right, Dr. J, I come back to you. You own GameStop calls and Lulu stock, but give me the GameStop read first. All right, Scott. Um, there's not huge volume today into uh, the earnings tonight, but they are pricing in about a 13% move, which is a big move, of course. Uh, that's the combination of the calls and puts at the money. You divide that by the strike price, you get a 13% move. Um, this volatility, though, is much lower, about 30%, 25 or 30% lower than it was for the June period, Scott. So just like Disney uh, a bit ago, um, have they mispriced? Have they not put enough uh, onto the possibility of a bigger move. We'll see tonight. That's why I'm willing to hold these calls, Scott. All right, Joe, um, Lulu, for you, what do you think ahead of the print? Well, I think it's it's certainly not going to be a quarter like we witnessed in June when you had a beat and raise in the stock jump June, July, and August over 20% towards 417, which was the all-time high. A little bit more complicated this time around. We've got to understand how the inventory is being managed. 33% of its inventory is produced in Vietnam. There are some supply chain disruptions that need to be navigated there. In-store revenue will actually be better than e-commerce revenue. That's just kind of a result of the summer. But overall, if you want exposure to athletic and casual apparel, there is no better name than Lululemon. I remain a long-term holder. All right, good stuff. Thank you, guys. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades on the other side. All right, welcome back. Let's do final trades. Dr. J, you go first, because I understand that you just bought some calls uh, a few moments ago, literally. Um, You guys are as right on the money and actionable and as real-time as it gets. What do you got? (laughs) Well, Scott, uh, Pete bought them for me. Uh, Bristol Myers, as uh, Jim Cramer might say. Um, Bristol Myers, the 65s and the 70s, extremely active. That's why we bought them. These are out in October. I'll probably hold them at least a month, Scott. That's a Jimmy stock, too, right there. Jim Labenthal, right? BMY, yes, didn't you add that recently? It is. I did uh, a few months nice ago. Nice one, Jim. Perfect yeah. pharma stock. Yep. What, what, what's your final trade, Jimmy? Uh, Marathon Petroleum. These guys are buying back their shares, hands over fists. Fuel demand should be going up over the coming months. 4% dividend yield. Marathon Petroleum. All right, Jenny. Blocking the negativity on the regional banks, New York Community Bank. 5.5% yield, 11 times earnings, double-digit earnings growth coming up. All right. Joey, what do you got? Zoetis, Animal Health, Kristen Peck might be the best CEO in the healthcare industry. All right. Good to be back with all of you. All of you as well. I will see you tomorrow. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.